Good morning, brothers and sisters. Good to be with you. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Open up to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4. We're going to continue through this letter of Peter this morning. We're going to find our place somewhere around verse 7. We'll jump into that in just a minute. And you're probably not going to believe me this morning, but we're only going to cover two verses. But there's a lot here. So I'm excited to dive into these two verses this morning in 1 Peter. So just remind you, we're studying through 1 Peter, we're reading through this letter of 1 Peter. If you haven't jumped in, you still can. Uh, we're going to continue through this book, really through the month of June. Uh, then we'll take a little break through the summer. We'll jump back into 2 Peter this fall together. So really looking forward to that. But you follow along in your reading. We're going to continue studying through this together every Sunday morning. Now, just as a reminder, uh, we're reading a letter. And it's a divinely inspired letter by God written by the Apostle Peter to a group that the Bible refers to as elect exiles. These elect exiles, remember, just like us, God's people, they've been called out of this world, but they're very much still living in the world. Very encouraging and challenging to us to see that. These elect exiles are asking the question, In this day, really 2,000 years ago, Peter writes, but the question is this, how do God's people live faithfully in this world that's not our home? How do exiles live in this present world that we realize and know is not our ultimate home? And Peter's been encouraging them and encouraging us with that through the first three or four chapters, just some reminders. He, he reminds us of the reality of living in exile. What does that look like to live faithfully? He says back in chapter 1, fix your hope. Fix your hope. In other words, you're only going to be faithful as you fix your hope, not on the things of the world that are going to pass away, but he says fix your hope on that grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope. Then he continues on and he says, we are, we're to pursue holiness in this world. As a believer, let me remind you, as Peter reminds them, the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ is living in you. Did you hear that, by the way? The Spirit of God dwells within us as believers. Therefore, our lives will look different than the world. We are pursuing to greater and greater degrees Christ's likeness and the world and us will be on different pages and we are to continue to pursue holiness and Peter says this with that as your lives are countercultural your conduct is countercultural you think countercultural you very much love the world but you're not like the world he says hey expect to be treated unjustly the real theme in this book, and you've heard that over and over. He says to them and to us, expect to be treated unjustly, unfairly for the sake of Christ. There will be seasons and various forms and various degrees that for Jesus' sake, you'll suffer loss. You'll suffer unjust treatment. How do you deal with that? Peter writes to them and he writes to us and he says, we do not repay evil for evil, 1 Peter 3, 9. So you may be treated like junk, but you don't respond that way. Respond with the hope of Jesus that's in us. Last week we saw that we are to resolve to be willing 
to endure ill treatment, unjust treatment for Jesus' sake. And he says we're to do this until Jesus comes and we're to do this faithfully and we're to do this with one another as God's people and we're to continue pursuing this. And then you get to verse 7 and it's if he says, okay, hang on. Peter, give us some strength and some encouragement to continue to endure well. Peter, give us, remind us of the hope that we have for us to continue to endure well. For them and for us. So that brings us to verse 7 of chapter 4. And again, with all of that context and all of that background, the question could be this. How do we live faithfully today, enduring well, suffering unjustly? Various forms, various degrees, whatever that may look like, in a world that is not our home. Peter's going to declare again a radically transforming truth that we know about, but he wants to remind us and wants to remind them of this soul-shaping truth in verse 7. So I'm going to read 7. We're really going to focus on 7 and 8 this morning. I'm going to read all the way down through verse 11 or so just for context. And then we'll walk through these verses together. So follow with me. Peter says this. The end of all things is at hand. In other words, to them and to us, it's a reminder. Things are not always going to continue like they are. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore... Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We're going to talk about that this morning. He says, verse 8, above all. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Love is to characterize God's people. Keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. A multitude of sins. Verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumblings. As each one has received a gift. He's entering into the realm, it seems here, of the spiritual giftings of God's people. As each one has received a gift, use it. In serving one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Verse 11. Whoever speaks, he seems to refer here to speaking gifts. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves those serving gifts within the church as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. I love that. Why? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And then Peter, as if he almost goes into a prayer, he says, To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, I want to try to draw out one big truth and then some big ideas, kind of our way of framing this text this morning. And here seems to be the overarching big idea that Peter wants us to see here. It's this. Elect exiles live with the end in mind. In other words, elect exiles in this world that is not our home. We, we are to live today with the end in mind. Something's coming, Peter says. 
It's not always going to be as it is today. And the promise of that return of Jesus is to transform the way you and I and these elect exiles then live today. Something's coming. Now, this is true in your life and every day, right? There's a sobering reality to our lives when we know something's coming, right? I'll just tell you, it's a sobering reality of my life every week because Sunday's coming, right? You're going to be here. We better be ready. Your teaching pastors better be ready. It's a sobering reality that I promise directs the way we live our lives every week. Sunday's coming. You better be ready. You know that when someone says, hey, I think we're coming over this afternoon. We're going to drop by. Somebody's coming. It changes things around your house, right? You'll be able to look at things different. That's a mess. Pick up your junk. Kids, get your shoes. Get the house in order. Something's coming. (laughs) Point is, Peter says, listen, the reality that something's coming, the reality that the end is near, that things are not always going to be as they are presently, is to strengthen our present lives today as we yearn to live faithfully in this world that's not our home. The end of all things is near. So this reality of the second coming of Christ, the return of Jesus, is, as you guys know, a theme throughout Scripture. It's particularly a theme throughout the New Testament. 23 of the 27 books deal in one way or another with the return of Jesus. Peter beats this drum throughout 1 Peter. We've seen it. We saw it in 1 Peter 1.13. He says, set your hope. We looked at this earlier. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. When? When Jesus returns. He says to the elders in chapter 5. We'll look at this in a few weeks. He says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you leaders of the church will receive the unfading crown of glory. Something's coming. And the reality of that will transform your life today with hope and endurance to suffer well and to walk faithfully. The end of all things is at hand. Elect exiles live with the end in mind. Now, let's walk through a couple verses. I'm going to pull out some big truths I think are really going to help you challenge us this morning. Let's look back in verse 7. I want to walk through these verses slowly. Give us some application this morning to our lives. Back to verse 7. Here's what Peter says. The end of all things is at hand. I'll stop right there. If you write in your Bibles and you do word studies, and I encourage you to do word studies as you dig deeper into Scripture, this little word end here in the original language is the word telos. So that really helped me a lot. I'm very impressed by your Greek knowledge, Pastor Mike. That's not the point. The word telos in the New Testament is not used by authors as a chronological end to something. In other words, Peter is not trying to set a date here. Peter is not saying, you know, I'm looking at all the signs and things are getting really bad. And, you know, the economy's awful and the countdown is on. That's not what the word telos means here. It's something greater than that. The word telos means something that's fully completed. It means the consummation of something. It means the goal achieved. It means a, a result attained. It's the perfection of something. Let me give you a place in the Bible this word is used. It'll help you a little bit. 
a form of this word was used by Jesus on the cross when he said, it is finished, to tell us that. Wasn't talking about the chronological end of something. He was talking about the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan on the cross. Everything had been accomplished. What Peter is saying here is not, I'm setting a date. Peter knew better than that. Jesus said, no man knows the date or hour. What Peter is reminding them here is this. The idea is that the fulfillment and consummation of God's redemptive plan is at hand. It is coming. And the author seems to be indicating the, what we would call with the phrase at hand, the, the idea of the imminent return of Jesus. You say, okay, well, what does that mean? In redemptive history, the imminent return of Jesus means this. Everything, I, I'll just read it this way. Nothing must precede his return. It could be at any moment. We don't know. In other words, all the major factors of God's redemptive plan have been accomplished. The cross, the resurrection, Pentecost, the birth of the church. When you look at God's redemptive historical plan, the next great event is the return of Christ. And, and Peter is saying, there's nothing that has to precede that. It's at hand. So here's your big idea. This might help you. Put all that together. I, I think this is a way you could say it. Big idea is this. The return of Jesus is next next we don't know when he doesn't want us to know when the idea is it's next God's redemptive plan is going to be fulfilled he is going to return he is going to make everything right and to these exiles who are struggling and suffering and wrestling how long oh Lord is the sense he says the end is coming. It will not always be as it is. There is a day of the full consummation of God's redemptive plan. It's to be strengthening. It's to be encouraging. It's to give our soul strength to continue on. Here's the way Wayne Grunem, one commentator, said this. He says, all the major events in God's plan of redemption have occurred. The cross, resurrection, the ascension, Pentecost, and now all things are ready for Christ to return and rule and make all things right. The end of all things is at hand. The return of Christ is next. Be encouraged. Be strengthened. Something's coming. Someone is coming. Now Peter takes this and he doesn't stop there. I want all of you to, to be real clear on this this morning. Here's what we tend to do in the church is we begin to chase a doctrinal reality like this and we say okay well here's what I need to do I got to get my charts and I got to get my maps and I got to get my timetable and I got to figure out this is when it's going to and this thing's going to happen that thing's going to get all struck. Peter says no that's not the point here the end of all things is at hand now watch look at verse 7 I'm going to give you your next big idea the end of all things is at hand verse 7 look at your next word circle it square it mark it whatever you have to do therefore Therefore, be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. In other words, Peter doesn't say, get out your charts, get out your maps, get out of the condition. No, no, no. The question Peter is posing to us and to them is this. Does this 
rock-solid doctrinal reality that the Scripture holds out as clarity that Jesus is returning, does that transform your daily life? Because, by the way, if it doesn't, you don't really believe it. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, in light of this reality, how does this rock-solid biblical truth increasingly change our daily lives as we grow? Here's something that's really, I think it's challenging for us. I think we need to hear it. I need to hear it. I wrestle with it all week. Any biblical truth, any biblical truth is only rightly believed when that truth is increasingly transforming our daily lives. See, we, me, we, we tend to say, well, yes, I, I believe that. I, I affirm that doctrinal position. I, I believe that is true. And then we think that's why the Bible holds it out. Yes, this is an absolute truth. Jesus is returning. Peter says, you don't even rightly and fully believe it until it's increasingly transforming and changing your daily life. See that? Therefore, he says, affirmation does not equal obedient transformation. That was a great place for an amen. Just one. Let me say that again. Merely affirming something is not the same as obediently being transformed by that reality of truth. Peter says, therefore. Let me just give you some examples of this. Affirmation does not equal obedient transformation. Let me give you an example in everyday life. You might affirm this reality and say, I believe this to be absolutely true. Here it is. I believe exercise is a vital part of overall health. I affirm that. You got an exercise routine? Well, no. You got a gym membership? No. Could you find a gym if you had to? Okay. In other words, affirmation of something is not the same as obedient transformation of that reality. Let me give you another illustration. I think maybe most of the people in this room would say this and you would affirm this. The Bible is the inspired word of God. Amen. We'd all affirm that. I hope you would. I would. A recent Barna poll of Americans said this. Almost 70% of Americans affirm the Bible to be the inspired word of God. Wow. Guess what percentage of Americans said they read the Bible on a daily basis? 11%. 30% say they read it at least once a week or more. In other words, there's a massive gap between affirming the reality of something and it transforming our daily lives. Peter is saying the end of all things is at hand. Does this reality shape your daily decisions, your daily life? Has this truth so been meditated upon and so prayed upon and so held? Not that you merely hold that truth. What's this? That truth holds you. That's growth in Bible understanding. That's growth as a disciple. 
Even as we as a church, I'll just give you another example of this. Even as we as a church are holding out this discipleship blueprint that we call it as our efforts to grow in our disciple making as a church, we have something called a discipleship pathway. And basically that says every disciple, you got a next step. You got a next step. I got a next step. There's this process of conversion and submission and devotion and comprehension. These phases of our growth and we all have a next step. This idea of comprehension is this. It is marked by a growing discernment formed by God's word. And the word of God trickles down into every single area of our lives. That's growth. It's maturity. We want to spur one another onto that. Peter is spurring them on. He's saying, okay, don't just hold to the reality that the end is near and Jesus is coming. Is it transforming and trickling down into every single area of your life, child of God? The return of Jesus is next. How does that transform your life today? Peter goes, goes on. He says, Verse 7, go, go back, read it again. He says, the end of all things is hand. Therefore, here's some things that the reality of Christ's return should transform in our hearts. He says, be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. For the sake of your prayers. Here's your next big idea is this. The return of Jesus calls us to soul readiness. The imminent return of Jesus that, it, that we know it's next in God's agenda is to call us and to spur us on to soul readiness. Now I want to look at these two words here. I want to spend some time on these because these are immensely helpful to us. He says we are to be self-controlled. We are to be characterized by a sober-mindedness is the way the ESV translates those two words. These words have overlap. They're similar in their meaning with slightly different nuances. And I want you to walk with me through these two words. Again, this is a great place to do a word study on your own. What do you mean by self-controlled, Peter? What do you mean by sober-minded? Well, the idea of self-control could be described as this. It is to be characterized by a sound mind. We are to be characterized by discernment and wisdom. It literally means to be in one's right mind. You're thinking clearly. It's the opposite of being carried away by error or emotion or passion. Particularly in this context, Peter knew that some were being carried away by the emotion of the imminent return of Christ. And they were responding out of emotion. And they weren't responding out of an ordered thinking. And he says, no, no, you're not to be carried away by error or emotion or human passion. He says self-control is the idea of a sound mind, clear thinking. The ability to evaluate every situation maturely and correctly. Believers are to have a sound mind. We are to be self-controlled. It is to be a sobering reality that Jesus is coming. And it's to spur us on to think rightly. To think well. 2 Timothy 1.7. You can just write these down. They're not going to be on the screen. 2 Timothy 1.7. Paul says it this way. For God gave us, believers, a spirit not of fear, but of power. And of love and of, here's your word, self-control. Here, 
Paul says to Peter this idea of self-control, this right thinking, this ordered thinking, this right discernment fueled by mind that's saturated by God's word is the opposite of fear. It's the opposite of unrational fear. He says this, this seems to refer to a self-controlled and properly prioritized mind. This is the opposite of fear and cowardice that causes disorder and confusion. We are be, to be characterized as God's people in our minds, in our discernment, to evaluate situations rightly. The return of Jesus calls us to that. Titus 1.8 to the elders says, but be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright and disciplined. So self-control is the idea of a sound mind, a discernment, the ability to evaluate situations from the truth of Scripture. Sober-minded here means this. Sober-minded is the idea of spiritual alertness versus dullness. It's the sharpness of someone, and he uses the metaphor of alcohol. It's, it's the difference between someone who is sharp and alert and someone who is drunk and their senses are dull. He says, be sober-minded. The senses of your thinking are to be sharp. In this day and age, he says, be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter takes this to the next step, and he says, verse 8, Again, they're not going to be on the screen. You just write this down. He says, be sober-minded. Same phrase. Be watchful. That's the idea. There's an alertness to us. We have an awareness of situations in people's lives, our lives. There's this spiritual discernment and alertness. We're not dull. We're not insensitive. He says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be on the alert. You're at war. You're at war. 2 Timothy 4 5 says, You, Paul writing to Timothy says, But you be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of evangelists. Fulfill your ministry. Flowing from a spiritual alertness of our thinking, our mind, our perception. Wayne Grunham again sums it up this way. I thought it was very helpful. He says, These phrases certainly include. The idea of physical drunkenness, but also forbid letting the mind, watch this, letting our mind wander into any other kind of mental intoxication or addiction which inhibits spiritual alertness. It forbids any laziness of mind which leads Christians into indifference and apathy or carelessness. Man, is that a drumbeat for our day. I'm telling you, I'm reading this and I'm personally challenged by this. And part of me wants to go get on my phone and play my, my gun shooting game, you know, and my app that just dulls my mind. And the scripture calls me and calls all of us to recognize you live in a doodling age that wants to dull our minds and intoxicate our minds to dullness. And by the way, Peter says, be on the alert. You've got an adversary, the enemy, who's coming after you. Watch out. We're to be self-controlled. We're to be sober-minded as God's people. As I was walking through this, I was thinking for myself, I was thinking for you, our church. I was thinking as a parent, God, give my children in this age of a flood of intoxicating falsehoods and lies. Let our children have a self-control about them. Let our children have a sober-mindedness about them. 
Lord, let our church have that. Am I able in all of life to evaluate situations from a place of discernment, maturity, clarity, controlled by the truth? Or am I carried away by every fleshly impulse, unstable emotion, popular opinion? Is there a spiritual alertness about me? Or am I mentally intoxicated by the endless distractions, entertainments, empty pursuits of the world, leaving me indifferent, careless, and apathetic? By the way, I wrote this to me. Are my choices and habits, are my choices and habits growing me in self-control and sober-mindedness? This is a great challenge for us, brothers and sisters. Peter says the end of all things is near. The fulfillment of God's redemptive plan is sure. Until then, therefore, be self-controlled. Be sober-minded, he says. And he continues on and he says here's the practical reason. There's a lot of reasons, but here's the reason Peter is going to chase. Verse 7 Therefore, be self-controlled, be sober-minded. Why? For the sake of your prayers. What do you mean, Peter? He says, for the sake of your prayers. This is not merely so that you can pray more. The heart behind this, the spirit behind what Peter is saying is so that you can pray effectively and appropriately with discernment and alertness. Prayer is not a consumeristic tool to get what you want. Prayer, according to John Piper, is like a walkie-talkie on the battlefield. Understand the battle, know how to pray. With this alertness, know what's going on in your life and the lives of your families. You know how to pray. Have a discernment about what's going on in the lives of your brothers and sisters around you whom we are called to build up one another so that we can pray effectively and rightly more than, well, Lord, just bless them. I just bless them, Lord, just bless them. Nothing wrong with that. Peter says, for the sake of your prayers, be self-controlled. Be sober-minded in your thinking for the sake of your prayers. Colossians 4.2 quickly says this. Devote yourselves to prayer. Again, you can write these down, not on the screen. Devote yourselves to prayer. Keeping alert. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Is there an alertness to our praying? Is there a sober-mindedness to our praying for one another? Ephesians 6.18, he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. This is the idea of constant responsive prayer. When a situation arises or someone comes to me, what, there's this, this response of prayer, but it's this sober-mindedness. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, Paul says, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. What does that mean? 
It's part of our building up one another unto Christ's likeness is a sober-mindedness and a self-control that I have an awareness of what God is doing in your life, the temptations you are facing, the struggles you have, the roadblocks that are there because there's a sober-mindedness about me and I turn that into effective prayer on your behalf. Pray for one another, but pray effectively. Pray with an alertness and a sober-mindedness. Mark 14, 38, Jesus says this. The night he was being crucified, remember, he gathers the disciples. They're there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they're kind of confused about what's going on. And it's late. There's a dullness to them. And Jesus says this, Mark 14, 38, keep watching and praying. Stay alert. And remember, they had no idea of everything that was about to happen. They had no idea of how vulnerable they were in that moment. Jesus says, be alert, be sober, keep watching and keep praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, he says, Mark 14, 38. Do you and I possess the self-control and sober-mindedness to realize our own vulnerabilities? Our moments of weakness and susceptibilities. And we turn those into fervent prayer. Peter says we're to be self-controlled, we're to be sober-minded for the sake of prayer. For the sake of our prayer. The return of Jesus calls us to soul readiness. So the return of Jesus is next. The return of Jesus calls us to a soul readiness, Peter's saying here. Third thing quickly is this. The return of Jesus calls us to fervent love. And by the way, these are not unrelated. He's saying as you pray, and you're praying for one another, there's this overflow of love for one another, he says. He's speaking to the, the way the body relates to one another. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Verse 8, get your pen ready. This is important. Above all. Wow. Above all, keep, this is an imperfect tense, meaning it continues on, keep loving, keep loving, keep loving one another earnestly. We talked about that a few weeks ago, back in chapter 1, that earnestly word is, it's, we get the word tenacious or tendon from it. It's to stretch something, it's to exercise something beyond the natural limits, fervently stretch Beyond what's comfortable for you. Beyond what feels good to me. Fervently love one another earnestly, fervently, tenaciously. Why? And here's the application. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Let's see if we can break this down a little bit quickly. He says above all. Priority, he says here, is the love of one another Love is to characterize followers of Jesus. Say, Peter, where'd you learn that? Y'all know where Peter learned that. He walked with Jesus for three and a half years. Some of the last teachings of Jesus to his disciples, we know from John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I've loved you, Jesus says, you also are to love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. The way you love one another. 
Above all, there's to be this love. And the word love here, you know this, is, is agape. Agape, when you hear that, or you, you see that word, you're to think a, a God-like love. A love that is who God is, and he enables his people to love this way. It's a God-like love. It's not an eros, erotic love. It's not a stoige, this natural family love. It's not phileo. It's more than friendship love. It is a supernatural love. This kind of love endures when the loved one is unresponsive or the one being loved is unkind or the one being loved is unworthy of that love or the one being loved is unlovable. <laughs> Got anybody that's hard to love in your life? This love endures even when the loved one is unresponsive, unkind, or hard to love. It says we're to love earnestly. I talked about this, but it's this Tenos, this stretching beyond our limits, the love in a fervent way. We will grow in our love for one another only so much as we're willing to stretch beyond our comfort zone. What comes easy? What's in it for me? Jesus says, look, the fulfillment of all of God's plan is at hand. You're to have a soul readiness about you. A sober-mindedness, a self-control for the sake of your fervent and active prayers for yourself, for one another, for your church, for the kingdom. Your life is to be characterized by this fervent love. And then he gives the application. Okay, Peter, there's a lot of ways you could take this idea of love here of one another. But he takes it in one direction. Look at verse 8. He goes back and he says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers multitude of transgression. <laughs> Peter says God-like love is characterized inherently by a tendency. A it, it tends to forgive sins, offenses committed against one another by others. Within the body of Christ, Peter is owning and acknowledging that there will be offenses committed toward one another. There will be hurts brought upon by one another. We are broken people. We tend to hurt one another. An expression of this fervent love is to stretch beyond what comes natural. Stop claiming your rights. Stop holding grudges. Stop keeping a record. 1 Corinthians 13, that keeps no record of wrongs. It's not to bear a grudge. It's not to be so sensitive and hold that over someone. Well, you know what they did to me, so I can do it. No, 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 no. It is to cover by the blood of Christ, in a sense, and give the same forgiveness that you have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. Alistair Begg said this quickly, and the team can come on up and just begin to play. We're going to move into a time of response. What does cover not mean? This does not mean to cover a multitude of sins, that we sweep sin under the carpet. We avoid the difficulty of confrontation. It does not mean we dismiss the responsibilities of discipline. But it does mean love is ready to forgive and forgive again and again and again and again and again when you're wrong. How in the world do we have the capacity to do that? And Peter, where did you learn this? <laughs> we know where he learned it. Same as everything else. Three and a half years, he walked with Jesus. And Peter came to Jesus at one point. Matthew 18, Peter said, Lord, how often, do we, how often does my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Remember that? 
Peter said, Lord, seven times? And Peter, by the way, when he said that, he was probably patting himself on the back thinking, seven? I mean, I'm pretty generous. Jesus says, Peter, I tell you, no, 70 times seven. You forgive, and you forgive, and you forgive, and you forgive, and you forgive. Jesus modeled it. Not only taught it, he modeled it hanging on the cross. Ultimate injustice. Father, forgive them. They know what they're doing. How do we love like this? It's because the one who loves perfectly lives inside of us by his spirit. See, the gospel of Jesus makes forgiveness of us, wretched sinners, possible. We are transformed, and then we're able to practice and grow in that kind of forgiveness toward one another. And Peter says, the end of all things is near. He's going to wrap it up. The fulfillment of all his redemptive plan is, is at hand. The return of Christ is to call us to soul readiness. And the return of Christ is to call us to fervent love for one another. If you bow your head for just a minute. Just in this moment, I want to pray for us. And then want to ask if you're here and you have never experienced that kind of perfect love. You've never received the forgiveness that's offered in Jesus. He has died and given his life in your place that you can know complete forgiveness and transformation. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you've been spurred on this morning by not just to affirm a biblical reality, but is it changing your daily life? Lord, I pray you take your word and press it down into our hearts and transform us for Jesus' sake. In your great name we pray. Amen.